We'll open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Esther. Esther, chapter number 3. And we've been trucking through the book of Esther, and a little faster than I typically go through an expository series, but uh, my desire has been to remind us just of how wonderful the providence of God is. And so as we get into these uh, studies here, especially as we start to go through the book of Esther, I'm not trying to speed through for any reason other than to maintain a specific focus. But, you know, it does not take long to look through history and find evil. It doesn't take long to do this at all. You have your Hitlers, your Stalins, your Maos, your Mussolinis, and the like. And whenever these individuals rise up, we must not allow ourselves to get hung up on the individuals. It's very easy to do this. But whenever these individuals rise up, we need to remember the record of God's ability to be providential even in the midst of that. We must never forget and let those times where evil men rise, it should remind us that we never should fear standing for what is right. And so the question that I'd like to start off with this morning is simply this. How can Christians face evil times with calm and yet not appear weak? Or maybe another way of saying it, how can Christians face evil times with a calm and still remain bold. Let's take a look, if you would, in Esther chapter number 3, starting in verse number 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advance him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence him. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, did uh, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spoke, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto him, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then Haman was full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Father, bless now we pray the reading of your word. Open our minds and our hearts. It's in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. With the question being posed, how can Christians face evil times with a calm demeanor and a good attitude, perhaps 
uh, would be a way of saying it as well. How, how can we face these times with a good attitude and yet remain bold? I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I find that struggle between being bold as a lion and yet <laughs> calm as a lamb, right? <laughs> sometimes it's difficult to be wise as a serpent and at the same time harmless as a dove because that wisdom of the serpent makes me want to bite, right? That harmless as a dove sometimes can come across, and if, if I allow the flesh to get involved, I think, well, I'm showing harmlessness as a dove, and yet I'm being accused of weakness. And there have been many times, and uh, I'm sure Pastor can think of it as well many times, and all of you can probably understand this very easily, how you have made a decision to do things the Christ-honoring way. Perhaps it's in the job force. Perhaps uh, uh, you, were, you were in a, a situation in work and you had other people there around you, or, or just in life, or maybe in a, a local restaurant or what have you, and you knew the right thing to do at that moment was to just... Remain calm, bury it deep within, be meek, be mild, be humble, be lowly. And yet you were accused of not having the mind of Christ. No one in the workplace came and said, man, you showed yourself a really strong Christian right there. No, what they say, you're a pushover. You're weak. Well, if that was me, I'd have been right in the man's face as soon as he said, well, if that was me, you know, that no customer would talk to me that way. But maybe there's been other times in your life where you didn't react the Christ-honoring way. You were bold. You were happy to let them know that they were wrong. I can remember, uh, it's been several years ago uh, when I was a teenager, we went and, and uh, we were standing along the street. We had our signs. Um, we had our abortionist murder signs. We had our uh, God is on the side of life signs. And, and, I, and I remember standing there, and, and the part of me, that young child of me, when people would drive by and they'd honk and say, yeah, we agree. You know, that was part of me, yeah, I get excited. That's, that's right. And then I'd hold my sign, and then somebody else would honk, and they'd be flipping us off. And, oh, I got mad. And I would want to say something back, and my mom would just stop, stop, stop. I remember reading not too long ago of a group of people going through that very same thing. And their response was to throw bricks through the window of the abortion clinic. And some may say, well, they were standing for what was right. The question is, how can you stand for what is right and at the same time remain calm and have a Christ-like attitude in the process? I've seen men online and on uh, uh, Facebook and, and YouTube and different things ripping apart any Christian who would be calm and submissive over wearing a mask. And they go down the road of how dare you call yourself a Christian and put one of these on. And then I've seen the other side where it's all about, let's just roll over and do whatever they ask. And here recently, the Pope decides to change the Bible. Now, come on. Let's stop for a minute. There is a way, I believe wholeheartedly, 
There is a way to stand on what is right without punching the face of the one who is wrong. And it's time for us to learn this. This is a difficult thing. I've been asked questions, and I'm sure you have too. What is your stance on said thing? And you've had to make your stance. Now, I could make my stance very easily and say, well, I'm against it, and I'm against anyone who's for it. Or I can simply say, you know, I'm against it, but I still love. I'm against it, and I can still be kind. So how do we do this? Let's take a look at chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Esther. And I'm actually going to want to go back just a few verses into chapter 2 because I think it all ties in together. Let's look at some of the different information, and then, then I'm going to give you the application, information, application. We'll go back and forth with this. Uh, look at verse number uh, 19 of chapter 2, if you would. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat at the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, uh, like as when he was brought up with, she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigfan and Teresh, uh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king was known to Mordecai, and the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, uh, Mordecai uh, becomes aware of this plot to kill the king. Now, let's take the side of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the story here, and let's say there was no choice in the matter, and there was no volunteering or anything being made. Let's say that when all these young ladies were, were uh, uh, told uh, that they were going to be put into a contest, uh, a, a Miss Persia pageant, so to speak, that they had no choice in the matter, and they came from ha- to house to house to house to house to house collecting all these young ladies and your daughter was in the midst and your daughter was taken to this group of, uh, of women. Your daughter was thrust into the palace and your daughter was going to either become the queen or one of his concubines. No questions asked, nothing. And she may even, if she doesn't please the king, she may be dead. And this man just came and grabbed your daughter. And then you find out there's a plot to assassinate him. Hmm. You gonna be quick to go tell? You gonna be quick to go save the life of the man that just took your daughter? This is the position Mordecai finds himself in. There were, these were these two, Big Fan and Teresh, were the keepers of the door, or so to speak, security guards. And I'm sure that there was some, I don't know, some unease in Mordecai's thought process. Should I say it? Should I not say it? Uh, I mean, the guy's a lunatic anyway. Well, maybe this is the hand of God. I don't want to get in the way of the hand of God. <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe God wants him dead, and so should I. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. Look, God wants him dead. He's going to be dead, whether you say anything or not. And Mordecai decides to do what is right. Now, that's a difficult thing for us to swallow, because many of us would say, ah, let the guy die. My daughter was taken in. This, to me, is actually an indication that perhaps things weren't as, as, as bad as what we may believe. But regardless, the application point that I'd like to make in this is that Mordecai did what was right by saving the king's life. He did the right thing. And so how do we apply this to ourselves today? Well, many today would have let the king die, but Dr. Bob Jones was known for saying it is never wrong to do right. But I might want to add something to that. It is always wrong to ignore right. Sometimes we get ourselves, well, the right thing to do would be to do this. And so it's never wrong to do right. But I'm not going to help kill. I'm not going to encourage them. I'm just, I'm just going to be a passive observer. It is always wrong to ignore right. Well, show me that in the Bible. Okay, I'm glad you asked. Look at James chapter number 4. James chapter number 4. Well, if you can show that to me in the Bible, I'll agree with you. Okie dokie. James. That's toward the end. It's after Genesis a little ways. James chapter number 4. Look at what the Word of God says here. Look at the very last verse in chapter 4. The Bible says this, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is what? I'm sorry, what was it? You sure about that? Let's try that one more time. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, it is. <laughs> so now we have Mordecai faced with Good, knowing to do good. And if he had not done it, he would have what class? Sinned. As I look into the life of Mordecai here and Esther, and I ask myself, how in the world can I know that when the time comes to simply not bow, when, when and we'll get into that here in just a moment, when everybody else in the world is bowing, when everybody else in society is doing what's popular, when everybody else in society is saying, just take the easy way, when everybody else in society around me is doing the wrong thing, how do I know beyond the shadow of a doubt I'm going to do the right thing? I purpose in my heart to do good. And I must purpose in my heart, notice this, to do right regardless of my personal feelings. Regardless of my personal. I, look, <laughs> I'm not worried about what everybody else is doing. I'm not worried about what everybody else is thinking. I'm worried about one thing and one thing alone, honoring God. That's it. I want to do right. So how can Christians face evil times with calm and yet not appear weak? Well, first off, you've got to purpose now to do right no matter what takes place. Let's look at the next thing here. I've got to give myself a bookmark. 
verse, uh, chapter number 3, look at verse 1 and 2 in the book of Esther here. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advance him and set his seal above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reference. Let's just pause for station identification. You are at work. And the boss's life is on the line. I'm not saying his job is on the line. His life is on the line. And you run to his rescue. You put your life in jeopardy by saving his life. And he promotes your coworker. <laughs> That's just what happened. Mordecai puts his life, he puts his neck out. I mean, what if Big Dan and Teresh find out that Mordecai is taking this information? What if the king doesn't believe it and the Big Dan and Teresh come and, de- and decide to kill Mordecai instead? He puts his neck on the line and Haman gets a promotion. Huh? Now, I don't know about the rest of y'all, but that would, that would upset me. I'm just being honest. The flesh would come out. And he said, what? I say, what's this guy got? But I want you to notice what happens here. For reasons we don't know, the king promotes Haman and commanded everyone to bow and reverence. These are the words that are used. This word reverence, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the word here for reverence is, is to pay uh, homage or to revere or to venerate or worship. So people would say, well, you know, bowing back then was like saluting, and so he wouldn't salute. No, he would not worship. Haman. Now, this wasn't necessarily an uncommon thing. People say it was only uh, customary for the Jews to do that. No, uh, the Greeks would also respond this way many times. They would refuse to bow to a person saying, we do not bow, uh, we do not worship man. We worship the gods, or in the case of the Jew, we worship the one true God. We do not worship man. All that changed when uh, the Caesars decided to become more than just man. They wanted to be worshipped as God himself. But the next thing that we see here, not only is it that uh, Haman uh, was put into this place, but Mordecai refuses to bow. Now, there's an interesting thing that is noted here, and I want you to, uh, to take a, a quick look at this. And If you look, go back to 1 Samuel chapter number 15 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want you to see, because in Esther chapter 3 verse 1, it references Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, most of us, we don't read about the Agagites. We read about another group of people known as the Amalekites. I want you to see 1 Samuel chapter number 15. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me, just put a marker for a moment in in Esther because we're going to be looking at a few different passages. The Lord sent me to to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalekite, or Amalek, uh, the Amalekites, Amalek did to Israel how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. 
Keep your hand here in 1 Samuel because we're going to come back to it and go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Because what in the world is he saying? But Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel, how he laid weight in the way. Look at Deuteronomy chapter number 25. This is key to our story today. Deuteronomy chapter number 25. Look at verse 17 with me. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee. When thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God, therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. What is it that he said that is being said? In verse 18, it says, How he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee when you were weary and faint. In other words, when the people of Israel were making their way out, Amalek came from behind where all the wounded, all the sick, all the, uh, all the, uh, uh, the uh, older people that were not able to uh, maybe carry a sword or, or, or the little kids who were not able to fight in the war. Back and from the back, he came and he attacked from that side and he killed them and he, he made his way through. This is something that that was absolutely horrific, and the people of Israel were supposed to remember this. Now go back to 1 Samuel, and I want you to see what took place here. 1 Samuel 15 again, verse 2 said, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now read verse 3 through 9 with me. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And, the, and Saul gathered the uh, people together and numbered them in Telim, uh, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Canaanites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness unto all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the, the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Hevelah uh, unto the uh, thou comest to Shur, uh, that is, over against Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So Saul comes in, charged by God, to get rid of the Amalekites, and he spares the good stuff, which God told him not to do. And not only does he spare the good stuff, he spares the king Agag. Had Saul simply obeyed God and not spared the life of this man Agag, go back to Esther chapter 3, you would not have Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the descendant of Agag. Now we have, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. The Agagite 
He is placed in a high position. And Mordecai, being a direct descendant of Saul, he knew something that most of the other people probably did not know. He realized something that probably most of the rest did not know. My great-great-grandfather left his great-great-grandfather alive. Why doesn't Haman refer to himself as an Amalekite? He wanted to be known as an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. We find in this how Mordecai then refuses to bow, not just Jews, but often Greeks will do this, as I told you. But this angered Haman. Now, he seemed not to mind a single person, but it was due to his being a Jew uh, that infuriated him. This bothered him. So how do we apply this to today? (laughs) Mordecai refusing to bow to this devil. Realize something. Christians are called to be submissive. As long as it is fitting in the Lord. The Bible says that I am to submit myself one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now this a lot of times only gets applied to the, to the marriage. Uh, the husbands are supposed to submit to wives. Wives are supposed to submit to husbands. And sometimes people don't even notice that verse. They only notice wives submit to your own husbands. Uh, but you've also got both sides of the thing. But this is actually talking in the household of God. Go back a couple chapters and you'll get the context of what's going on. So as people of God, as the children of God, as the family of God, as a church, we are to submit to one another. So when I show up and I've got someone in my church family who has a certain conviction that I don't espouse, do I thrust my liberty upon them? No. I submit and I will take on your conviction. But beyond that, the Bible also says that we are to submit to governors and rulers and magistrates Yes, this is in context. And Greg Locke, I dare you to show me how it's not in context. This is not something that is being taken out of context. This was a context given to people who were being killed for what they believed. And we, as born-again Christians, are to do the same thing and submit as long as it is fitting in the Lord. Once they cross the line of telling me to do something that is not biblical or that is not God-honoring, then it's time for me to make my stance. But if I purpose now to do what is right regardless of personal feelings and I purpose now to refuse to practice evil for the sake of acceptance, then when the time comes for me to make a stand, it's going to be a little easier. Mordecai refused to bow to this devil. 
But I want you to see something in this. Haman showed just how small of an individual he was because one man in the entire kingdom didn't bow. And he storms back home to his wife. And you read the account and he says, honey, he won't bow to me. It's awful. My day's over. My life's ruined. This one. <laughs> well, who is it? Is, it? is it somebody? It's that one guy over there. I don't even know his name. He ruins my life. He. It's kind of reminiscent of Ahab. Remember King Ahab? We used to sing a song when we were kids. King Ahab went a walking. Yeah, and he goes. He goes over. He wants the, that vineyard. He wants Naboth's vineyard. He no, I'm not going to sell it to you. And the Bible says he goes home and he tells his wife and he throws himself in bed. Curls up and sucks his thumb. Yeah, that's a mighty man of valor right there, isn't it? How many times do we do the same thing? Honey, nobody liked my outfit today. I had somebody said I looked like a 1970s news anchor. Nobody liked it. Stop. We do this kind of stuff, don't we? Don't show yourself little. By letting one thing ruin your day. Don't be Haman. But I want you to also notice a couple of other things and we'll be done. We're going to make our way. We're rounding third, heading home. Look what else took place here. Haman spends an entire year. Notice verse 7 of chapter 3. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Now, there are two ways of reading this, and depending on which commentator you pick up, you're going to get two different stories. Um, what it's saying is that they rolled the dice to determine which day rolled the dice to determine which month, and it was kind of a one-and-done thing. Personally, I believe that they did this day after day after day after day after day, month after month, until they found the right day. Regardless, Haman goes home, and he puts thought to not only what he's going to do, but he wants the exact day and time he's going to do it. And so he spends time, and he figures out when he's going to do it. And it ends up being uh, on the uh, 12th month, which is Adar, and on the 13th day. Now, I'll give you just a little bit of a timeline here. Esther begins at verse number 3 of chapter 1 in the third year of Ahasuerus. Esther is made queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus. We see that in chapter 2, verse 16. Now here we are, it says, in the 12th year. So this puts it at about 474 B.C., give or take. Xerxes' campaign against Greece, we looked at that some last week, has uh, pretty much left the nation crippled financially because he has spent so much money and more, and he is now hurting financially. Well, why does this matter? Go to, um, uh, go to verse number 9 with me, if you would, in uh, chapter number 3 here. 
Haman talking to the king says, if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it unto the king's treasuries. Okay, 10,000 talents. We don't use talents today, but I wanted to uh, give you modern day understanding of what it is. Uh, a, A talent, uh, depending on the the historical document that you're looking at is anywhere from 50 to 33 kilograms or 72 to 110 pounds. So using using those two numbers, 10,000 talents would be approximately a million pounds of silver. If we use the 33 kilogram amount, we're looking at $148,687,287 200, $600, in today's money because today's going rate of silver is approximately $206 per pound. If we use the 50-kilogram measurement, we're looking at $227,161,000. The king was just offered over $200 million. And he says, do whatever. He took his ring off and says, here, do whatever you want to do, man. You take your money? <laughs> I mean, think about that. Here was the promise. So what do we learn from this? <laughs> Don't be surprised when money talks. <laughs> I can't believe Washington made a decision like that. You kidding me? Money talks, my friends. You know somebody's greasing somebody else's palms. <laughs> I would never do that. You know how many people vote their pocketbook? You know how many people make decisions based solely on how much money's involved? We do this. Don't be surprised. So going back to the original question of how can I stand and remain calm? Well, right now I purpose to not give in to money or whatever bribe is being offered right now. Now I purpose this in my heart and in my life. I cannot wait until the offer is given. I have to practice it on the little things. I have to practice it on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment type of a a setting. Uh, We were at uh, uh, Menards the other day, and uh, I don't know if you, I, I play when I'm at Menards, okay? Forgive me, I'm ADHD, OCD, ADD, and it, 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 it's just, it's a whole list of initials. But I was picking up some, uh, uh, some things to make my daughter uh, uh, a thing, some things for things. It was, uh, I was picking up some 90 degree PVC piping, and I put them all together. And so I carry in this one big U-shaped thing, you know, lay it on the counter. Well, the lady looks, and she knows what I did. Everybody, I guess I'm not the only one that does it. She counted three. I had four. And she said the number. And, and when I shop, I kind of I I, I kinda do the math in my mind, and I know approximately how much something's going to cost when I get up there. And she said the number, and I'm like, well, that was a little cheaper. I must have over. And I looked at the screen, and it said three. And she had already hit go. I had already stuck in the card or gave her the cash or whatever. And she's like, oh, no. I said, uh, I said, you notice that that's three. I actually have four of them. She goes, oh, no, I've already finalized the sale. You know what, don't, I said, no, I need to pay for that extra one. 
So just ring me up again. It's okay. I got a couple bucks here. I can just pay for the fourth one again. The little things lead me to the big things. And if I'm not willing in the little things to do it God's way, that's a piece of plastic, Pastor. Are you kidding me? No. No. We need to make the piece of plastic monumental in our life or we will never make worshiping a false deity monumental in our life. How can I stand bold and yet remain calm? Because it's been a practice. I did it for that. 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 I'll do it for this too. Last. Let's look at this last little bit of information here. Mordecai is broken. You go to chapter number 4, verse 1. It says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, he rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. Drop down to verse number 9, because Esther is starting to get involved here. She sends uh, her maids to uh, take Haman a set of new clothes. She actually sends new clothes. Tell him to get dressed and quit acting like this. You stop finding that in verse 4. But look at verse 9. And Hatach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And Esther spake unto Hatach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that, what, that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called. There is one law of him, uh, of his to put him to death except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king in these 30 days. So for 30 days, Esther hadn't been called, and, and Mordecai's saying, you need to go talk to the king. And Esther's <laughs> Mordecai doesn't know what he's asking. Mordecai doesn't know what he's asking me to do. Mordecai doesn't realize what, <laughs> what's, you know, he needs to wake up if he thinks I'm going into that king's room <laughs> unannounced, uninvited. He does not know what he's asking me to do. No, I think he knew exactly what he was asking. I don't think he was foolish in this. I think he knew exactly what he was asking her to do. You know, there's many times where I have advised people They've asked me, what do I need to do in this situation? Well, you need to do this. Do you have any idea what will happen if I do that? It's the right thing to do. (laughs) Well, if I do that, I might lose this. If I do what you're saying is the right thing to do, and I might lose my relationship with someone i might lose my you're telling me that i need to i need to, i need to discipline my child they won't like me i might lose their favor and oh i don't want to do that i don't want to make little johnny mad how many adults are walking around scared of their six-year-old child what are you unwilling to sacrifice 
well, Pastor, you don't understand what, what, what you're asking me to give up. So I understand exactly what I'm asking you to give up. You. I'm asking you to give up you. No, you're asking me to give up my relationship. You're asking me to give up my job. No, no, no. I'm asking you to give up you for him. Mordecai knew exactly what he was asking his cousin. It wasn't a surprise to him. God knows what his word asks us to give up. You. God's word, as I go through here and I read from cover to cover, the pages are peppered with love me more than you love yourself. Follow me, not them. Well, if I make a stand for what's right, Pastor, my son is going to be mad. If I make a stand for what's right, Pastor, my daughter is going to be upset. If I make a stand for what's right, Pastor, my spouse is going to be furious. Stand, having done all to stand. Decide now to lay down whatever it is that you are unwilling to give up for the Lord. In looking at all of this, just like Esther assumed Mordecai did not understand what he asked, many think God's word is oblivious to what's going on in their life. This is not the case. So, if you're curious, and let's revisit the question one last time. How can Christians face evil times with calm and yet still not appear weak? Number one, I'm going to give you several things to choose today. And these are decisions that we need to make. Number one, I will get to know him more. I don't know him enough. I don't care if you've been reading the Bible for 800 years. You do not know enough about God. I will get to know him more. And I will decide right now to do what is right today. Not the rest of my life, just today. And then tomorrow morning when I wake up, guess what I'm going to decide? To do what is right today. And then last, this is a hard one. This is a difficult one. And I've been looked in the face and told I will not do that. Decide now that you will sacrifice anything for him. I can remember the moment that God revealed to me that that woman and those three children God gave me meant more to me than him. You want to talk about a difficult day. Where I knelt down in my little study. And I said, God, they're yours. Not mine. 
you do what you want with them. And I'll follow you no matter what. They're yours. You can take better control, better care of them than I ever could. And I trust you, God. No matter what happens, I trust you. What are you unwilling to sacrifice? You know, it gave me more. And people say, well, I love my kids too much. I love my spouse too much. You know what? I fell head over heels in love with her more after that day. Because I finally was able to see her the way he sees her. What are you unwilling to sacrifice? Maybe it's time to bring it up here. Maybe it's time to lay it on the altar and say, God, I want to know that when the road gets tough, that I'll be able to stand. But I'll be able to stand with the right attitude, with the right heart, with the right mindset, because it's all yours. And I'm not standing for me. I'm standing for you. Father, I come to you, Lord, begging you, Father, to use the meager words that I've attempted to share. Father, the things that you have placed on my heart, I've tried to convey them as best I can, but Father, you and you alone are the only one that can speak to hearts. So Father, I ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts Work in our lives, Father, in such a way that we are willing to offer anything to you and we will be able to stand when the road gets tough, when things get difficult. We will be able to make a stand, but Father, not just a stand for stand's sake, but a stand because we know the right thing to do and we want to bring you glory. Help us, Father, to remain calm in the midst of difficulties. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.